Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country. There's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie. This is part two of my conversation with Wilmer Otto. Thank you for coming back. I've heard a lot of people apply the word simple when they talk about the Amish. And I think it's anything but simple. Plain is another word, and plain might be maybe a little more basic but I don't think of simple. I give the example of uh, I get when I want to go to town, I walk out the door with my keys in my hand and get in my car and start it up and go. Whereas an Amish person has to get, you know, go get, get the horse and go through that whole procedure. Um, what's that actually like for somebody to have to go and get ready in the morning? Not just not just on a nice sunny day, but on a, a day where there's you know, the winds blowing, the snow is the snow is coming down and it's pretty ugly outside. What's what's that experience like? It's anything but simple, isn't it? It's anything but simple. Uh, I mean, it's simple from the standpoint that, you know, mechanically you don't have as many breakdowns with a horse and buggy as you do with a car, uh, no flat tires. Um, but it's complicated from the standpoint that they plan ahead, you know, and they don't just run to the store to get a gallon of milk. Um they might go to the store, you know, once a week. And so there is more deliberate uh, lifestyle and more planning involved in accomplishing what they need to do without a lot of the accessories that the rest of society mm-hmm. uses. You know, they they do make most of their own clothing. Um, for people who like to sew, that's really a release and, and a forming, uh, you know, enjoying a craft for people who do not enjoy sewing, then it's probably a chore. I am seeing uh, some introduction of factory-produced clothing, so long as it's very plain, you know, only one color, not a pattern on it, so on. But... Yeah, keeping a garden and making it the major source of their food rather than going to the grocery store, well, that's a lot of work. Can, to some folks, it's complicated. Uh, to a lot mm-hmm. of the Amish, it's an art form, and they really enjoy keeping a nice garden, having a lot of flowers in it, and so on. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder as to uh, what's simple and what's not. Right, um, right. I do appreciate when I'm driving around the I, I, I try not to even have a garden anymore because it doesn't make any doesn't make any sense for me to try because their gardens are so beautiful, and so productive. And um, I always see the mostly women out working in them. And I know that it's a source of pride for them. Um, are Amish homes, would you consider them basically patriarchal societies? I mean, that's kind of a conception that people seem to have and i would seem that it seem think that it might be somewhat true but it also seems like they built these beautiful homes and uh that there are probably a, a lot of accommodations for the women in the lives so uh is it more of a patriarchal society 
Well, you would definitely term it a patriarchal society based on general sociological standards. Um, only the men are allowed in the ministry. Men are considered to be, quote, the head of the home. And the alternative to that is the fact that almost without exception, all major decisions are discussed with their wives. And even things such as when I came around uh, asking if they had would make a donation for our building project, the barn raising and restoring the houses, they would say, well, um, let me think about that, and I want to talk to my wife. Oh, uh, and things such as buying a farm or expanding their business and so on, there's a lot of discussion so that the women have, I would say, very close to equal participation in the rules. Now, you know, you have uh, conflict and disagreements in any marriage, but they tend to work those out. And occasionally you'll have a situation where a husband will be asked to stay with another family, usually a minister, while uh, emotions calm down and people uh, can counsel both members of the couple, both parties. And, um, you know, after a week or more, then they, the, whoever was away from the home come back to the home and they resume uh, marital life. Um, so, you know, they, they do have their own system of dealing with uh, what the rest of the world would call inequality. Uh, and they feel like they are living in harmony with the scriptural teachings, which scripture says, you know, the man is to be the head of the wife and the wife is to be submissive and all that. Um, they use that verbiage, but in the way they live their life, it's much, much more equal. And in most cases, I would say fully equal. It'd be very rare for a man to go out and make a decision that his wife 100% opposed. And likewise, uh, for decisions the women make, it happens. You know, there's no question there are exceptions, but it's not the practice. That's just, that's so nice to know. I mean, it really is. It. Um, I kind of suspected that, but I... You know, there are a lot of things I that I've thought I, I thought I knew that I realize I don't. But this has just been wonderful. You've given me so much. To, it's given us so much to uh, enlighten people so much. I just uh, and you mentioned earlier. I'm glad you said this about wealthy Amish because that's another misconception. People seem to think that all Amish are wealthy. It's not the case, is it? There are people who struggle within that community. Yeah, it, there are various uh, levels of management ability within them. And there are some that, you know, are good at organizing things and enjoy it and have people working in their enterprise and uh, be profitable. And there are others who try to operate a business and they don't have the self-discipline or the kind of financial practices that, you know, can keep a business viable. And so in those cases, they close the business and go to work for someone else. Hmm. Uh, back when 50 years ago, more of the livelihoods were from farming, there probably was more um, equality within them in terms of amount of accumulated 
assets that they had. But with the industry, with the cottage industries popping up now, because there just isn't enough farmland, and it's very, very difficult to make a living from farming now because they do not use a large-scale mechanization that their neighbors mm-hmm. do. And so the cottage industries have become the primary way for 80% or more of the Amish. Mm-hmm. And with that, you do have more segregation um, of income levels or more various levels. You know, you'll have some factories that employ two or three people and you'll have some that have 20. They mm-hmm. do encourage factories not to get too large. And if you get up to 20 or 30 employees, you're encouraged to divide your business and allow some of your employees to have their own business and oh, set them up to actually to compete with you in the same project. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's one individual in the community that I can think of that probably more than any other individual helped uh, <laughs> at least 15, maybe 20 other shops get established after they had worked in his shop for a while. Sharing the wealth as it should be instead of just gathering it all just for one person. That's wonderful. What a lesson for all of us to learn. So um, how did you end up, you you uh, to, to go back to focus on you again for a little bit here at the getting closer to the end, I think, um, you, you said in your Facebook profile that uh, you you were thinking about wanting to go to law school. Um, what what changed for you to change your career path, and what are you basically doing now? I know you do real estate, but I know you have interests in Ukraine and different places overseas. So, well, um, yeah, I was a child of the '70s, and uh, that was you know the era from civil rights and um, equity issue or gender issues were coming to the fore. The Gloria Steinman was getting a lot of publicity with her now uh, organization. And so I thought I wanted to be an attorney and, and help pursue um, equal rights for people that were marginalized. Uh, I graduated in 1973, but I had graduated with degree in history and political science, which is a precursor to law, but I didn't get accepted in any law schools. And so I came home and worked in uh, my dad's real estate business, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting people. Uh, I discovered that businessmen are not all venal people just chasing the dollar for nefarious purposes. Uh, Some of them are really nice guy and have more social impact than those who are real strident advocates for a particular mm-hmm. issues. And that's you know, where it, it caused a shift in my thinking, and I was totally comfortable uh, going ahead with business and seeing what I could accomplish in, in that sector. Uh, so I pursued real estate and um, gradually through working more on commercial listings than residential listings, I believed in my product and bought some of the commercial properties. Um, that kind of continued until some would say it got out of hand, but at least, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm mostly working now in my business and commercial developments and, and no longer take listings to sell other people's properties. So you recently had a dinner at your house with some guests, some special guests from, Afghanistan, is that correct? 
That's true. Um, do you mind? Do you mind talking about that? I think that's so fascinating. Well, one of the things that's interesting about the Amish is they're viewed as a very insular people, and you know, very uh, focused on their community and on themselves. But they also really do have a broad interest in what's going on in the rest of the world, and that's why the phenomena of having what they call their annual relief sale, in which they raise money for relief purposes all around the world, they have huge participation in that. And they really feel a lot of satisfaction in knowing that they're helping people in Asia or Africa or uh, wherever there are needs. Um, and so that interest in what's going on in those overseas locations carries over into the situation when a local uh, woman felt the need to help the refugees that came out of Afghanistan after the Taliban took it over. And so um, she formed what she called a welcome home committee and found uh, housing for seven or eight Afghan men who had to leave Afghanistan because they had worked for the U.S. And uh, when the U.S. pulled out, their lives were in danger. And so mm -hmm. the U.S. Uh, airlifted something between 110 and 150,000 people as part of their uh, leaving Afghanistan. And they were housed in various military bases around the country, one being Wisconsin. And so this woman, uh, I will say, is Juanita Marner, who's a very exceptional person and gifted person, contacted the, the people in charge of refugee resettlement and got seven or eight uh, located in Arcola. They uh, all have jobs working mostly at the Master Brand Cabinet Factory. Um, mm. They did not speak English when they came. They had to be taught, you know, how to do the things on the assembly line. But they're very good workers and very determined to make as much as they can so they can send it back home. Because Afghanistan is in a very dire humanitarian situation. The U.S. Uh, military expenditures in that country supported something between 30 and 40 percent of the economy. And when that just certain suddenly stopped, that was a huge shock to the economy and a lot of unemployed. So uh, that's what these fellows are doing. When we talked about what can we do to help, the notion arose that rather than having a fundraiser so they can send more money back to their families um, is dangerous because the fact that they their families back in Afghanistan are watched. And if it's known that they have family in the U.S., that makes them suspect and subject to persecution. Mm -hmm. So they suggested we send uh, funds to Doctors Without Borders because they're still active in Afghanistan where a lot of other humanitarian agencies providing medical services are no longer there. And so um, that's what we did. They... Um, developed the full Afghan meal with uh, all of the kind of accessories, uh, trimmings and so forth, but they um, had uh, meat from a goat as well as beef. And um, we had about 51 guests there, had a lot of fun and uh, mm -hmm. raised over $5,000. Mm. Oh my goodness, that's wonderful, wonderful. Um, what about your... Uh, business and your friends in Ukraine, how are they faring with everything that's ongoing over there? Are they are they in danger still? Or I mean, obviously, anybody in a war situation is endangered, but what is their status? 
I spent uh, over an hour on uh, my uh, WhatsApp call with my manager over there this morning, as well as his son. Uh, yeah, they are in danger in the sense that a lot of the Russian missiles that are sent over have very poor guidance systems and will land in residential areas rather than on a military target. Mm. But more than that, the the Russian strategy from a year ago has shifted to openly attacking civilian non-military targets, hospitals, schools, apartment blocks, uh, deliberately trying to inflict as much damage as they can to terrorize the civilians and get them to plead with their government just to concede, give up and stop the war. Um, it's an incredible um, act of war crimes on a large scale, uh, during which we still have people in this community who applaud Putin and say he's a great leader, we admire him. We have people, our elected representatives, that have refused to condemn the Russian invasion mm. of Ukraine, an innocent country that was not doing any harm to Russia. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's it's astonishing to think that uh, this could be happening in this day. The fellow that, that I was in communication with operated a microfinance company for me. Um, initially, when the war started a year ago, everything broke down in terms of delivery of groceries to stores for farmers. The dairy that they were keeping, nobody came to pick up the milk. They were having to dump it because mm. cows have to be milked, whether there's a taker for it or not. And Oleg was going out in the village in his car and bringing five-gallon buckets of milk back to the central kitchens that the communities established so mm. that people that didn't have any food could come to a central place and uh, at least get a meal. And um, that has stabilized somewhat now in the western part of Ukraine. I would say with an air of defiance is saying, we're going to show Putin we will not let him ruin our lives. And they are going out in the open. Uh, when there are air raids, they get into basements and cellars. But uh, supply trucks and so on, restaurants and stores are open again, and you can mostly buy supplies. Um, but that was a big part of what Oleg was doing for probably six or eight months. He mm -hmm. sent me a photograph of a cruise missile flying over his house. And, uh, you know, it landed somewhere. But um, so far, he and his family are safe. I mean, my employees, I uh, also have a business in Romania, um, and so we got the women and the children to the border where my Romanian hotel managers could meet them and get them into their town and into our hotel for a few days. But then the Romanian people really stepped up. Romania is the poorest country in the European Union, lowest per capita income. Mm. And they have stepped up and welcomed these refugees into their homes. Mm. And uh, when... The second day of the invasion, I called my manager of my hotel and said, let's prepare to take uh, as many people as we can into the hotel. He said, Wilmer, we're already organized. We have homes lined up that will oh, accept the refugees into their homes. Isn't that mm -hmm. something? Boy, I can't imagine something like that going on in our spoiled country where we have everything at our fingertips and we're just so 
so terribly spoiled here and um, we just don't, we take it for granted so many times. I just am amazed that you have such a fascinating story to tell. Um, well, I, yeah, I'm amazed too. I wonder what does it mean <laughs> when one simple, merely peasant Amish lad, uh, you know, finds himself in a place like Ukraine and Romania where uh, I can be of value and assistance. Um, it's it's a good feeling. Well, the, the good Lord sure picked the right person when your family, um, you know, when you had that opportunity to become Mennonite and, and broaden your horizons a little bit. Um, what do your What do your Amish friends think of all that involvement? I know that I know I, I had some Amish friends that I mean at that time when I knew them. He read Newsweek on a regular basis. He read U.S. News and World Report. I know that they have that they have the budget newspaper that they are up to date on their own communities and when people move away. But how many um, really understand and are that informed about current events like the war in Ukraine? Well, it's a pretty broad mix. You know, you have some that are readers and really enjoy keeping up with uh, popular events and, and the general news. Uh, there are some that are less interested in that. Um, in general, because they are a conservative culture, they take a conservative stance on a lot of world events and political events. And, you know, I hear a lot of references, well, you know, we're in the last days. The end of the world is near and uh, we're you know soon going to have an apocalypse. So that that's one set of reactions. Hmm. Um and then there are others that just are very interested and will ask questions about what my employees are doing over there and uh, are concerned. You know, when they meet, they'll ask for an update. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, you know, travel in a way that they could not travel. And, um, you know, uh, have involvements that an Amish person could not do, but I, I generally feel supported. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, I know that the P Amish do travel a lot more than people realize that go across uh, to visit. I don't know how, do they visit overseas very often? Do they make that kind of travel? I know they travel within the United States, but I didn't know how frequently they would travel outside of the United States for any reason. They're, they uh, do not fly unless it's in a medical emergency. So that means if they go to Europe, they'll go on the Queen Mary, a boat. Uh, really? And there are some that have done that from this community. Oh, yeah. Really? Uh, they'll go by boat and go by train and bus. Uh, and when they come back, they have lots of stories. And, um, you know, people are very interested to hear oh, about I their trip. Bet. I uh, bet. It would yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, there are not very many. I can think of maybe four or five in this community. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, it's not forbidden. Um, mm. The cost uh, kind of is a hurdle, but some mm. single, and, and and these four or five all were, no, I know of a couple as well that are a married couple, that went, but uh, mostly it's younger people that don't have families to support yet. Mm. Um but, you know, generally their stance towards travel is that uh, that is enjoying God's nature and they mm -hmm. will do family trips on the train to the Rocky Mountains and uh, mm -hmm. all the way to the 
West Coast. So yeah, it's it's travel and seeing world the broader world is is certainly part of their culture. You had mentioned the other day that um, that there are, if I'm not mistaken, did you say there were 14 new Amish settlements in southern Illinois? Correct. Uh, southern Illinois, western Illinois. I saw a horse and buggy just outside Peoria, Illinois, uh, oh in the last six months. I was shocked. I realized there was a settlement there. Uh, from the Arthur community, there probably are three or four that have formed. And then other Amish from Indiana and Ohio will go there. Um, but yeah, it's it's an issue a lot of times of uh, land is cheaper, and so they can you know have enough acreage. They can have well, most of them even in the new settlements are not farming. They they have cottage industries. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes there are differences in church practice that attract them to a different settlement, and it may be. A very incremental, small difference, but it's enough that they decide they'd like to go live there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the Amish settlement that's down around Flat Rock does allow telephones in the home. Uh, oh, interesting. Here, you know, telephone out in a cottage uh, or in a little uh, phone building, you know, away from the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there can be very small incremental differences, but they decide they'd rather live in that environment. You know, it's just ironic that from the first days, uh, 500 years ago, or soon will be 500 years, the the 500 year anniversary comes in uh, 2025, and so there already are plans underway on how that will be observed. Uh, uh, but in 1525 in Zurich, Switzerland was when the movement is considered to have begun. Hmm. So um, from the very first, they kind of had to be light on their feet and ready to travel because of persecution. Hmm. And maybe that's kind of uh, pushed into the gene pool and their DNA now. And so they're willing to, you know, sell their residence and their business and relocate to another community. Mm-hmm. They um, do they generally? I, I know I've heard people make reference to um, the people bringing in, in, young people into a community to marry because that you know they don't want to interbreed so much. I mean, not at all, but uh, that they want to um, bring fresh blood in, so to speak, so that there's that there aren't people marrying within the family. Is there? Is there a lot of truth to that, that they bring people in or introduce people from outside? Of well, I mean, yeah, informally, you know, there's some pressure, uh, you know, they don't want to marry a cousin. And mm-hmm. so um, they do visit other communities for gatherings of some kind, but with an eye out or their antenna up to see if there's somebody interesting. <laughs> yeah. and, um, you know, one of the very active members on our board at the Illinois Amish Heritage Center is Ed Yoder, who was from Kelowna, Ohio, raised Amish there, and uh, came to Illinois for something, might have been work, but he met an Illinois woman and married and stayed here. Um, So yeah, that 
uh, going across state lines or going into different communities to meet other people happens. And there is an awareness that they should not uh, marry someone too closely related to them. Hmm. Do um, going back to insurance, I'm going to touch on that for just a second. Do the, do most women, Amish women have children at home or do they go to the hospital or is it because I had one neighbor years ago ask me if I could if when her time came, if I could take her to the midwife or bring the midwife to her. And uh, as it turned out, it didn't she didn't need my need me to take to deliver the, the uh, midwife. But is it more common to have children at home or? Well, I would say it's not common, but it is done. I mean, I would say probably no more than 10% of home birth happen and the rest mm. uh, go to the hospital. It's more costly to go to the hospital, and I think that impacts uh, some families. Uh, they mm -hmm. want to avoid that expense if they can. Uh, the whole issue of prenatal care and how often to see the doctor, uh, you know, that's uh, something that some people are more uh, willing to accept, you know, lots of prenatal visits and mm -hmm. uh, other women wait until, you know, they're quite far along in the pregnancy before they hmm. go. It's interesting. But, yeah, there, are, there was a local qualified and I think there's some certification possibly that the state requires in order to be a midwife. And so there are mm -hmm. midwives in the community that offer that service. Hmm. Back uh, since we're still in the insurance, uh, mentioning insurance, my neighbors down around the corner from me, the, their barn burned down last fall, and um, I could watch it burn. I could see it from here when I and um, so is that a situation where the that those some of those funds that have been raised ahead of time are used to help them rebuild? Uh, it's absolutely one where the church and the community provide funding to rebuild, whether it's a barn or uh, two years ago, there was a well-known case where a leaking gas line caused the house to blow up and uh, killed one child and severely injured another child. And his home was rebuilt within 30 days. Yeah, uh, I remember. And, I've seen, I saw the know, progress. That was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And so uh, that that's how those things happen. Um, you know, I'm quite sure this barn that burned, they would have received support from the community. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, within the community, we have a sawmill that provides lumber. We have truss factories that create trusses for the roof. We have wall paneling factories that create walls, have window factories that make windows, have door factories that make doors, kitchen factories that make kitchen cabinets. So uh, a lot of these donations, you know, come in form of a product that the, oh, the donor I might see. already be making. I see. So, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it also takes some cash, but mm -hmm. uh, that's how a lot of the rebuilding happens with, you know, goods provided by local suppliers. Hmm. Well, if talk about the uh, the cottage industry, that's another thing. When when the Amish people, if they don't have to pay into Social Security and they don't have to pay for insurance, then they're definitely going to be, be bringing home a bigger paycheck. And if they have two or three people in the family in that same factory, then they're 
that definitely adds to the cash flow for them. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, the they they not only have those sources of revenue without the expenses that their English neighbor would have, but um, beyond that, and now I've lost my train of thought. Source of, oh, expenses. They you know they produce a lot of their own food from the garden. They're not mm-hmm. buying a lot of clothing. They make it. Uh, they don't have an electrical utility bill every month. Maybe they have heat, uh, but a lot of them will use uh, wood from scrap lumber produced by the factories mm-hmm. to uh, uh, their homes. And so they also don't have a lot of the expenses, just uh, daily expenses that their neighbors would have. Right. Don't have a lot of they have to pay for Internet or any of those uh, things that the rest of us consider necessities that we could live without if we had to. But again, we are so spoiled in this country. I know I am, but um, well, gosh, Wilmer, I thank you so much. You've just been such a wealth of information, and uh, I know it probably kept you longer than we hope to. But I'm, I can't, I just cannot thank you enough for, for being here. You've been, uh, I, I know you knew my brother. We we only met a few years ago. Um, that's true. Uh, I knew uh, your younger brother George when we were both high school age, and. Uh, that's worth a program in itself, but you know, <laughs> but I will say that I admire your work and I look forward to following your podcast. Well, thank you again, Wilmer, and I I hope that you can find time again that we can come back and we can learn more together, all any listeners that we have, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Wilmer. Wilmer Otto. Thanks for listening to Life on the Illinois Prairie, the undercurrents of our American life. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to Life on the Illinois Prairie wherever you get your podcast. Stay tuned for more stories, interviews, and updates. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Until next time. Produced by Audovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.